Content warning. This podcast may contain sensitive subject matters and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the very first Theories of Hope podcast. I'm your host, Beck Howlett, and thanks for joining me today. Theories of Hope is a passion project of mine. Anyone who's ever had to navigate the health and welfare systems will understand how exhausting and isolating they can be. On top of your everyday battles of just trying to live, you're forced into a virtual PhD of logistics and linguistics, just trying to find and understand the support people and services that you need to carry on. Keep Calm and Carry On has obviously never been chronically ill. On top of that, the world is full of self-help gurus and their disciples constantly preaching the virtues of how if we just behaved like them, all of our problems would go away. But the truth is, life isn't that simple and neither are people. You can't always smile your way out of a difficult situation or just get a new job because that'll solve everything. Have you tried the turmeric tea? It'll cure your cancer. The head down, bum up, should be right mate attitude that Australians have is slowly killing us. Soldiering on just isn't an option for a lot of us. So how do you navigate the system when the system's designed to keep you oppressed? And how do you persevere when you feel like your lungs are filled with sand and there's no life left in your body? Those are some of the questions that I hope to answer in Theories of Hope. A real life, no bullshit, no inspo porn crapulence, just good old-fashioned honest real talk backed up by science and research. My name is Beck Howlett, I'm 39 and from the ages of 10 to 24 I was the sole and primary carer for my terminally ill mother. I bathed her, fed her, carried her when she collapsed, consoled her and forced medication down her throat when she was convulsing. One minute I'm a normal 10 year old girl and the next minute my mother's collapsed and I'm her guardian and carer. The change was as simple as that. I've had two mild nervous breakdowns and all of that does to your body. But I'm still here and I'm still kicking. I was raised in a fundamentalist religion, testified at the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, and I grew up in a toxic household with severe abuse always on the perimeter. In 2006, after my first breakdown and unable to control my headaches or physical symptoms any longer, the doctor strongly advised that I relocate away from my family to prevent a permanent breakdown. So I moved from Adelaide out to Brisbane and for a year it was wonderful. I was in La La Land, experiencing freedom I had never known existed. But in 2007 I was assaulted while walking to work. I got away but my employers didn't believe me and therefore they didn't tell me about work cover or allow me any time off. Needless to say, I started getting very sick, and I kept it together as best as I could, but I was terrified, and I didn't know what was wrong with me, and the doctors were just as confused. A rapid heart rate, known as a post-traumatic tachycardia, it is common after an assault, but it's supposed to calm down. It's not supposed to permanently stay high. I was terrified to leave my house, and while I reached out to my church at the time, they weren't interested. They didn't bother following up with me for another three months, and even then, it was only to get my preaching reports. They wanted to know how many hours I had spent witnessing. The gay, birds at work, gay boys at work, sorry, on the other hand, were fabulous, along with my friend Parry, who was Hindu, and Scotty McCotty, my atheist mate. They were the ones who rallied around me to make sure I was okay, never once allowing me to walk, walk home alone, 
and teaching me what real compassion was about. I left the church after that, having realised that years of childhood abuse and sexual violence in South Australia and now as an adult, a assault was being handled in the exact same contemptuous manner on the other side of the country. But this was no way that God was involved in a cult like that. I'd gone from believing in it as God's true religion on earth to recognising it's a cult. Cross-country institutionalised behaviours are a hell of a lot more than just imperfect men making imperfect mistakes. They are deliberate, predatory and evil, in my opinion. The resulting fallout meant I was shunned from every person I'd ever known or loved, including my mother. I was alone, lonely and terrified, but thankfully I was learning that people outside the cult were not evil or possessed of the devil. I would eventually be diagnosed with PTSD by my GP, who advised I see a psychiatrist. But having been programmed to believe that psychiatrists were evil and untrustworthy, and having a genuine fear of large power imbalances, I felt too vulnerable to see a psychiatrist. So I saw various psychologists over the years, and they did help, but I always felt like something was missing, a deeper understanding of the complexities of my situation, I suppose. By 2009, I had completely disassociated from my life and I was unable to perform basic tasks. I was moving every six months, unable to functionally pay rent. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I remember having a discussion with my um, landlord at the time. I was behind in rent and he's like, Becky, you're behind. You, 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 your, your rent is $320 a week. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I paid my $320. He goes, no, 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 you, you pay fortnightly and it's three twenty a week. That means you've got to give me six forty. No, it's three twenty a week. I gave you three twenty. I could not wrap my head around the fact that if I'm paying fortnightly, that means I have to give him two by three twenty payments. Couldn't wrap my head around it. I gave you three twenty, it's three twenty a week. You want for couldn't figure it out. I was so disassociated and so off with the fairies that I just couldn't figure it out. And I'd get kicked out and I'd figure something out and I'd move on and da 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 da. It also didn't help that I had absolutely awful flatmates, as is always the way when you've got flatmates. But such is life, I suppose. At the same time, I was also starting to have trouble walking, which rapidly progressed until my blood tests were abnormal. But the GP referred me to a rheumatologist and eventually I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I was placed on medication, but it didn't really help. And in the end, neither my GP nor the doctor that I was dating at the time agreed with the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. They advised I get a second opinion. But being old-fashioned and not wanting to rock the boat, I stuck with the rheumatologist out of some misguided loyalty and belief that surely he knew better. In 2011, as my mother was dying, I moved to Victoria to be slightly closer to my mother in Adelaide, but not too close, and in the hope that I might meet and get to know my extended family, who are not religious, and that I might actually like them. My new GP also doubted my fibromyalgia diagnosis and referred me to a new rheumatologist, but the new rheumatologist confirmed the diagnosis of fibro and strongly stressed that my excessive issues were due to my mental health. 
Over time, despite medication, my physical condition became worse and worse until finally, desperate enough, I asked my GP for a referral to a psychiatrist. This would ultimately become one of the best decisions of my life. Not only was he able to accurately diagnose my mental health and balance medication, but he was also able to just explain complexities of people and dynamics and things that I'd experienced in my life, just general talk therapy stuff. He was able to break it down into such a way that nobody else had able to been able to do with such a finesse that it brought me peace and it made sense and all of a sudden I could unpack stuff that I'd never been able to unpack. That little bit of extra skill that he had, and I'm not advocating that every single person needs to see a psychiatrist, but in my experience, you know, the more complex your issues are, the more multi-layered they are, the more you benefit from somebody with significant experience just dealing with really, really complicated situations. And in my case, I was very lucky. My psychiatrist had spent 30 years working in the forensic system. So he was very, very well versed in complexities and in dynamics and in how childhood trauma can result in adults. So under his guidance and care, as I said, it became one of the best decisions of my life. He was able to accurately diagnose me with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression disorder. But he also strongly advocated against the fibromyalgia diagnosis. He said that whilst he didn't necessarily disagree that I had fibro, he was strongly against it being the only thing I had. And he was adamant that fibromyalgia is not a psychiatric condition. Still, I remained loyal to my then rheumatologist and instead I went back to my then rheumatologist and begged him to think outside the box because I was suffering. I could barely toilet myself, let alone walk properly. And at that point, my rheumatologist lost his temper and started screaming that I needed a new psychiatrist because if I wasn't getting better and I was struggling that much, then obviously my new psychiatrist was not doing his job properly. And that was my breaking point. Disrespecting another doctor in front of a patient is, in my opinion, so vulgar and disrespectfully unprofessional that any loyalty I had went out the window. Let alone disrespecting the only doctor who was proving to be of any functional support or relief to me. Needless to say, I went back to my psychiatrist and I asked him for a referral, which he did with a lot of relief. And this is how I learnt that sometimes birds of a feather flocking together can be a bloody good thing. My psych is freaking brilliant, and so all of his bird friends are also bloody brilliant. I have not had an issue with an accurate diagnosis or appropriate care since trusting in my psych's referral process. And he's also taught me the value of not taking shit from crapulent doctors. As a result, I now have a complex diagnosis but I have the medications to go with it and I'm thriving. My health is stable and I can remain self-sufficient and independent. But more than that, I have healthy and enriching relationships with all my doctors, including my now rheumatologist, who 
I personally think the sun shines out of her bum. Like, she's just freaking wonderful. She's a gorgeous human being who works with me and not on me, if that makes sense. During this time, I also got to know my extended family, some of whom have become my closest friends. And after many years now of psychotherapy, I am at peace with my life and who I am as an individual. It doesn't mean that I don't still have post-traumatic stress disorder and it doesn't mean that I don't still have major depressive disorder and that I don't still live with them. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card with mental health issues. You cannot unring a bell. Being in recovery from those conditions is just that. It's being in recovery. There's no such thing as recovered. They don't magically go away. They become managed. And that is how you live your life through management. I've learnt powerful lessons about competent doctors and not just blindly believing in them, as well as powerful lessons about my own strength and autonomy and advocacy. But I've also learnt that medicine works. During those seven years that I was misdiagnosed, I tried every alternative treatment available. I spent thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars searching for anything that would alleviate my pain you best believe i tried the bloody turmeric tea and it didn't do shit ultimately it was only medicine and an accurate diagnosis that made any difference and while my mental health does have a pretty gnarly effect on my physiological capacity from moment to moment day to day the irony is my mental health is profoundly stronger than my physical health I learnt this one the hard way after yet again presenting to the hospital in a deteriorating state. The doctors wanted to give me some strong painkillers, but I refused. Not out of some bullshit hero martyr stunt either, because there are no winners in the oppression Olympics, but because the pain really didn't seem that bad. Like, it's not my first rodeo. It wasn't that bad. I could legit not understand why my body was freaking out. In my mind, there was no way that the issues that I was facing could be because of a physiological response to pain and stress. It just couldn't have been it because my situation just wasn't that bad. There's no way. No way. Couldn't have caused it. No way, mate. Go think of something else. I wasn't having it. Didn't make any sense. Plus, I have a pretty severe reaction to opiates. I'm not technically allergic, but the puritous and prolonged gastrointestinal distress hurts like a banshee. And it keeps me in hospital anyway under observation because the effect is so severe I'm at a significant risk of anaphylaxis having already had delayed anaphylaxis previously reactions like this always pose a risk of developing an anaphylactic response so I have to constantly be monitored anytime I'm given any kind of opiate or something like that because not allergic today could be tomorrow so in my opinion I'm just swapping one shit show for another. This time, however, the doctor heard me and he kindly pointed out the risks of what I was doing. He highlighted my blood pressure and my heart rate amongst a whole bunch of other stats that I didn't particularly understand. But he predicted that in his experience, if I carried on denying the painkillers, that one day, sooner rather than later, I'd have a stroke or a heart attack. He asked me to test his theory. He said he understood why I genuinely believed my pain wasn't that bad and that I wasn't that stressed out. But he explained that there can be a significant disconnect between the mind and body and what they can individually endure. 
and he predicted that while my mind was fine to cope, my body wasn't so fine and that the stress I was putting my body under was putting my body at breaking point. So he asked me to take the painkillers and if my stats didn't reduce back within an hour, he'd correct his assumption. But if my stats did improve, would I be open to discussion about pain and stress management that took into account my intolerances and allergic risk factors? Within 40 minutes, my stats were back to normal. Well, mostly. And I have learnt that mind over matter is bullshit. No matter how strong you are or how strong you think you are, your body still needs and deserves to be loved and supported as a separate and distinct asset from your mind. Your mind is a powerful tool, but so is your body. But they are not mutually exclusive, and you have to care for them each individually. Suffice to say, I know the value of a good doctor and good health care, but I've also learned a thing or two about dignity in the face of hardship and standing up for it. Perseverance against all odds. My mum suffered terribly because she never learnt to speak up for herself. And ultimately, I believe that's what killed her prematurely. Two years before she died, we were back on occasional speaking terms behind the church's back. And mum kept complaining about how tired she was all the time and how her lips were blue and how she had trots all the time. I told her to tell her doctor to run additional tests and I told her that she needed to urgently see her rheumatologist and get it under control. I told her it was urgent because I vaguely remembered a conversation with Dr. Cleland from when I was just 11 and Dr. Cleland warned that when mum started having trouble breathing and getting diarrhea all the time that she would die within two years if we didn't get it under control and that the time to get it under control would be limited. Unfortunately though she didn't listen she didn't want to seem like a troublemaker, so she never asked to go back to her doctor, Dr. Cleland. And she never mentioned the conversation at all to her GP. And mum's diagnoses were complex as hell. There's just no way her GP could have figured that out. Dr. Cleland is one of two doctors in Australia capable of making mum's diagnosis and managing and overseeing it. A year before she died, she collapsed in a chemist and she never left the hospital. The scleroderma, which had kept, been kept under control by her lupus, was now out of control because the lupus was finally under control. For 20 years, we could never get her lupus under control. And so for 20 years, she lived on death's door, not realising that that was the only thing actually keeping her alive. The lupus would bring her to the point of death and then at the point of death the scleroderma would act up which would push the lupus back and then the scleroderma would act up but then the lupus would kick in and it was because they were basically both fighting for the right to kill her was the only reason she lived for 20 years. But when the lupus was finally under control the scleroderma took her out exactly the way Dr. Cleland had predicted. Within 2.5 years of mum's lupus being under control, she died of complications from scleroderma, exactly as Dr. Cleland had warned. The valve that pumps oxygen between her heart and lungs had collapsed and her body was no longer able to pump oxygen throughout her body. While she could breathe, 
Her body couldn't pump that oxygen around her body. The side happy note to my mum's story though is that in that last year before she died, she met the love of her life and she got married. This podcast is all about providing the solutions and advocacy that my mum never got and that I only learned after I found an amazing psychiatrist. A hope theory as an academic study is compared to theories of learned optimism, self-belief, self-respect and self-esteem. Higher hope consistently is related to better outcomes in academics, athletics, physical health, psychological adjustment, and psychotherapy. Dr. Charles Richard Snyder was the American psychologist who specialized in positive psychology and developed hope theory. According to Snyder's hope theory, hope can can be seen as the perceived ability to walk certain paths leading to a desired destination. In addition, Hope helps people to stay motivated when walking these paths. Hope, according to Snyder, consists of both cognitive elements and affective elements. Snyder's hope theory includes goals, paths, and freedom of choice. According to him, there are at least three components that people can relate to hope being one, you need to have focused thoughts. Two, you must develop strategies in order to achieve these goals. And three, you have to be motivated to make an effort required to actually reach your goals. The more the individual believes in their own ability to achieve the components listed above, the greater the chance that they will develop a feeling of hope. Goals are abstract and mental. They have the power to guide human behavior. And Snyder noted that much of human behavior is goal orientated. This is about the cognitive ability to produce a pathway that leads to the goal and to first think about it. Agency thinking, however, refers to the level of intention, confidence, and human ability to follow those different pathways to the desired future. The belief and the positive motivation to follow the path and direction there. It's my hope that you will follow along with me as we find hope in solutions to today's challenging problems that we all face, but especially those that affect those of us who are living with chronic health, disability and mental health issues. But whatever the situation, if you're doing it tough, my hope is that this podcast is for you and that you will find hope in the interviews and the resources provided within.